0: And thank you all for coming, a uh, very gratifying crowd. Uh, and this is our fourth anniversary. So we started this in October four years ago. And we've only skipped one month, and I believe that was August. It was this summer because most of us were out of town and we didn't have a speaker and so on and so forth. So our 47th Golden Beer Talk. So thank you all for coming. And. I'm Frank Blaha, and I'm the beer ambassador, and our featured brewery tonight is, as you can tell from my t-shirt, Barrels and Bottles, right around the corner on 12th Street. And uh, Barrels and Bottles has been here about three or four years. They opened just about the same time. I think they opened in September four years ago. And we have today a very nice English Pale Ale, which they call Space Oddity Pale Ale. As I remember, I didn't write down all the details there. 5% alcohol. I'd say it's about 30, 35% or 35 uh, IBUs, International Bitterness Units. And then we've got a very nice Saison, slightly sour, uh, nice and fruity. And it's dry hopped with sarochi Ace Hops, which are highly aromatic and kind of give it a lemony finish. And it's a very nice Saison. Uh, kind of the end of probably the Saison season here with the end of the summer and snow. But anyway, so Barrels and Bottles, and they've been supporting us right along for four years now. And one of the seven craft breweries in Golden, if you count A.C. Golden, Golden City, Cannonball Creek, Mountain Toad, Holla Daily, Did I Daily, Barrels and Bottles, New Terrain, and who am I missing? I'm missing someone. Oh, Golden City. Did I start with Golden City? No, we've got seven. Seven that are active. Cannibal Creek, Holiday Lee. Anyway, there's seven. Have another beer. Yes. I think that's a fine idea. That, that's the way to approach this. And um, my coworker Kim Linton, who retired at the end of July, is here. And so that reminds me, and she's also related to Fred Linton by marriage, and they supply us beer at times. And in Arizona, they were doing a recycled water beer contest. So they were taking, what can I say? They were taking poopy water, and they were treating it, and they have this all in a semi-tractor trailer. And they were going to all of the major water events because Kim and I, we, did water, we do re- water research. Kim is retired now, so now she's working on her house and doing other things. I continue to do water research. So in mid-September, there was a uh, uh, water reuse conference in Arizona where there was the final taste test for the best beer brewed from this recycled water. And so they took this trailer around to about half a dozen different breweries in Arizona, and they brewed different beers. And the winning beer was from Dragoon Brewing Company in Tucson, Arizona. And the amazing thing is, all of the breweries that support us, they do not say on their websites that they support us. And when I checked the Dragoon Brewing Company, they don't say that they won this recycled beer, you know, (laughs) taste contest. (laughs) And and the whole idea was to promote recycled water, you know, that the technology is there, that we can safely recycle the water. It was an IPA. You know, so so it was probably slightly reddish, kind of like our our English pale ale here. But And they, they did the same thing at the Colorado Water Congress here in January. And I'm sure they'll do it again this year. But anyway, so they don't have that on their website. The seven breweries that support us, they don't say on their website that they support us, but they do, every one of them, and every one of them is really nice to work with. And they've been very good people. They've been very supportive of of us. And so I encourage you to go to Barrels and Bottles and every one of the others and meet your friends and drink some of their beer. Two Golden Breweries won awards at the Great American Beer Festival. Cannonball Creek won with a silver medal for their Black 28, which is an American-style black ale. And then New Terrain won with their Sun Trip, which is a Belgian-style wit beer, and this was another silver medal. They both won silver medals. And those were the two that were won by Golden Breweries, the two medals. There were quite a few medals won by Colorado breweries. These were the two that were from Golden, and, you know, it's golden beer talk, so that's, that's the most important. So when will we be meeting you? Will we be having some of You know what? Probably they're out of these beers already, <laughs> probably. And to be honest, at, at uh, uh, Barrels and Bottles, when I was over there and I was, I was trying to get a more complete description of the Saison, I had the English pale ale last night, and so I felt like I, can, I could describe that. And the Saison, I hadn't tasted until today. And I was asking this guy for uh, a more complete description, Zach George, who is one of the owners, Zach and Abby George. And when I asked him, I I could see it was like overload. He was like, his mind was starting to grind, and he was like, well... And he said, you know, it was really a long weekend at at the Great American Beer Festival, because that was just last weekend. So their beer selection was low, and their quantities were low. And so... um, you know, they serve a lot of beer at the Great American Beer Festival, and they have thousands of people come by. So he was a little low on everything, including um, the energy to describe the beer. Anyway, so with that, that, that's uh, our little beer factoids. Uh, Is the recycled beer, Dragoon Brewing out of Tucson, Arizona. A nice IPA that won the award. And Please support Barrels and Bottles and our other six craft breweries. And here's Whitney to introduce our speaker.
1: All right. Hello. Welcome to our fourth anniversary. It is a special occasion for us because, well, for lots of reasons, but... um, Our speaker tonight was actually our speaker on the very first night that we held Golden Beer Talks four years ago in October, so it's awesome. I mean, you know we've really grown up when somebody had time to write a whole new book. In the meantime, I was amazed. I was like, this guy's gotten three new jobs and written a book since we started this nonsense. That's awesome. So (laughs) I'm going to start, though, um, as always, with some gratitude, so I want to bring up some applause for the crew here at the Windy Saddle, because they treat us so awesome, and they always take care of us. I want to express gratitude to goldentoday.com. If you aren't familiar with that website, I recommend visiting it. They have some, they always have all the news of what's going on in Golden, but they also have a couple of email newsletters that go out on a daily basis and just kind of tell you what's going on around town. So if you love Golden, that's a really good way to find out what's up. And um, their webmaster is also a volunteer on our organizing committee. Because it's our anniversary, I'm just gonna go around real quick and point out the people in the room that make this happen. So I'm going to start over here. Matt is on the soundboard. Matt Birdie and his, his wife, Yoko. Deanne, the owner of the Windy Saddle, is back there in the kitchen. Frank, the beer ambassador. Yep. We've got Jim Clawson over here on the camera. And next to him, Bart Sheldrake. We're missing Barb tonight because she had to go to a meeting about goldentoday.com. And we um, also are very grateful to Greg Reed. He's a local musician who lends us this sound equipment that makes the complete difference in the quality of what we got going on. So we're really grateful for that, too. You're here for Greg. Nice. All right. I'm going to read you the intro. I have to read it because it's so much information. I usually can do this on the fly. But there's some substance here pretty awesome. Adrian is a food writer, attorney, certified barbecue judge. I mean, how am I supposed to remember all that? Obviously, I need the notes. Um, Currently, executive director also Colorado Council of Churches. Uh, Previously served as special assistant to President Bill Clinton, senior policy analyst for Colorado Governor Bill Ritter, Jr., and uh, former board member of the Southern Foodways Alliance. His first book, that he read for us four years ago, Soul Food, the Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, won the James Beard Foundation Award in 2014. He's back this time with the President's Kitchen Cabinet. Let's bring him up, Adrian. Thank you.
2: So thank you so much, Whitney. It's great to be back here. So I feel kind of special, you know, like a four-year anniversary. So what I'm going to do tonight is, oh, hey, Whitney, how long am I supposed to talk? Okay, good, all right. Um, what I'm gonna do is give you my background, how I came to write this book, and then just give you some of my favorite stories from the book. Not all of them, because I want you to buy the book. So, uh, but I was born and raised in Denver. Uh, used to live by the old Stapleton Airport, so I had 33rd in Newport in Denver. Then I moved to Aurora when I was a little kid, went to Smoky Hill High School, went Stanford undergrad. I have a Stanford alum here. What's up? Stanford. Go Cardinal, all right. Uh, and then I went to Georgetown Law School. So I came back to Denver. I practiced law for about four years and I hated it. This is not to disparage any attorneys in the audience, but it got to the point where I was thinking spirituals in my office. So I figured I needed to do something else. Thanks for laughing at that joke. I worked hard on that one. <laughs> so I was gonna open up a soul food restaurant in Denver and a friend of mine who was back in D.C. called me up and asked me if I had friends back in D.C. who were interested in working in the Clinton White House. And the Clinton White House job was something called the President's Initiative for One America. It was an outgrowth of Clinton's initiative on race. And here's the crazy idea behind this initiative, that if we just talk to one another and listen, we might realize we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. Yeah, isn't that cool? Right. So when I heard this and she described the job, I basically did the same thing that Dick Cheney did when George W. Bush asked him to find a vice president. I was the head of the search committee, only my name went on the list. So I got the job. I had a great time. My only quibble about working in the Clinton White House is you've probably have heard stories of President Clinton who makes you feel like you're the only person in the room, draws you in in conversation. I never got that. Every time I talked to him, it was just like a blank look. I'd say, Mr. President, blank look, kind of like the one you're giving me right now. Uh, I'm Adrian Miller, blank look. I work on your One American issue. And he'd say, like, oh, that's great. You know, so... Uh, And then a woman would walk by and he'd call her out by name. I I don't know. So I'm just saying what happened, all right? So at the end of an administration, what happens is if you're a political appointee like me, like I was at that time, you write out your letter of resignation and then you turn it in to the incoming president. And it's up to them to decide whether they accept it or not. Shockingly, George W. Bush accepted mine. So I was out of a job and I was watching way too much television, daytime television. I said, you know what? I should read something. So I went to the bookstore, I got a book on the history of Southern food, and that put me on the path to write the book on the history of soul food. And while doing the research for that book on the history of soul food, I started finding out about all of these African Americans who have cooked for our presidents. But I only had a few stories here and there, so I said, you know what, if I get to the point where I have enough stories to write a book, that's what's going to be my next book. So that led me to the President's Kitchen Cabinet. Um, and to research that book, I essentially read every single presidential biography and autobiography I could find, even ones written by first ladies. Um, Every presidential cookbook I could find. And I probably read thousands of um, digitized newspaper articles. And that was the real treasure trove for these stories about these cooks because they're a hidden history. A lot of people did not take the time to chronicle what the cooks were doing in the White House kitchen, black or white. Uh, And what I found in my research is that from President Washington all the way to President Obama, there were at least 150 African Americans involved in presidential food service. So I got most of their stories in this book and sometimes it's just snippets here and there. The cool thing is that ever since I've written this book, I actually now have descendants of some of these cooks contacting me to round out the details. So that's just really, really cool stuff, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, I've already, in six months I already made back the money that I had for my royalty advance. And it took three years for the first book, so that's a very good sign. So I'm hoping to do an expand and revised edition because they also pointed out the stuff that I messed up, uh, (laughs) mainly because I was relying on a lot of secondary sources and secondary sources don't always get it right, including name spellings and things like that. Um, One disappointment is I did try to reach the cooks on the Obama White House. There are three African-American cooks in that White House. So I uh, contacted the White House executive pastry chef through a friend. He was immediately excited about the idea, so he said, yeah, I'll forward yours on to Michelle Obama's office. So, the, I'm thinking, I am in, I'm going to have serious access. So, not one day, not only did I get a rejection email, I got another one 20 minutes later, just in case I got it twisted the first time around. So, I <laughs> didn't get a chance to talk to the, the contemporary cooks in the White House, so the book has more of a historical feel than I wanted, but still, I'm very, very proud of the work. So, what we find is that A couple things. One is that our presidents are in what I call the presidential pickle. We want our presidents to be extraordinary people, but we also want them to be a lot like us. And so food can be a metaphor or a window in the presidential soul. So if a president likes the food of their childhood, the food of nostalgia, American regional food, we are like, okay, that person has the common touch. They're in sync with the American people. Now, if they like fancy food, especially French food, we get a little suspect, suspicious. We're not sure they have the, um, the, the common touch. So a lot of our successful presidents have been very savvy in using food as a symbol and as a way to actually advance their presidency. Um, in terms of Lloyd House Kitchen, typically you have the executive chef, and then you have a pastry chef who may have an assistant, and then there may be two or three other people. And what people don't know is that the White House kitchen is actually very small. It's only 26 feet by 30 feet. So it fit in this room right here, okay? So there are not a lot of people in the White House kitchen. Um, And most White House cooks in our history have been accidental. They have either been uh, the enslaved person or the private cook of someone who became president. Very few people enter their career saying, I want to be a White House cook. So um, I chronicled their story. So the first chapter that I wrote was about presidential stewards. And stewards are the people in charge of all the White House operations. Today we call that person the chief usher. Uh, and so for a, much of our history, that, have, that has been mainly biracial African-American men who have had that position as trusted servants. And so the first person I, I want to tell you about is a guy named Samuel Francis. Has anybody been to Francis's tavern in lower Manhattan? Okay, so there's a replica... Of this guy's tavern so he's born in the West Indies he comes to the United States in the mid-1750s starts running a business and one of those was Francis Tavern and General George Washington was one of his most famous customers loved his food and uh, when Washington becomes president he actually taps Francis to be the first presidential steward that meant he hired all the cooks all of the servants and um, he also did all the shopping and the menu planning okay So um, the first story I'm going to tell you about is the Poison Pea Plot of 1776. Now, did anybody learn about this in high school? No. Oh, wow. Okay. So the story goes, well, first of all, I have to tell you, all of our presidents, you know, they're human beings, so they have their favorite foods. George Washington loved green peas. He loved green peas so much that his contemporaries called him pea diddy. Okay, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry, see, that joke was just right there. I had to go for it. All right. So the story goes... Washington is there um, for dinner one night, and uh, Francis's daughter, a woman named Phoebe, is making dinner for them. And uh, she's making the green peas, but there was this guy named Thomas Hickey who was hanging out in the kitchen, and he was not feeling all this revolutionary talk. So he distracts Phoebe, and he adds some extra seasoning to the peas, and they get sent out to the table. So Phoebe thinks something's going on. She tells her father, Francis... Who immediately discerns what's happening and the story goes that just as the general is about to eat his peas francis bursts from the kitchen grabs the plate of peas and throws it out the window at that precise moment a chicken is walking by pecks at the peas and dies that's how they figure out their poison that had arsenic on it so yeah that animal testing just showed that that the peas were poisoned so it's a fantastic story but it's probably not true for a couple of reasons one, there was a woman named Phoebe, but... Um, or there was... Francis had a daughter, but she wasn't named Phoebe. Could have been a nickname. Uh, secondly, there was a guy named Thomas Hickey, but he was hanged that summer for counterfeiting, meaning that he forged passes that would have allowed some unsavory characters to be in Washington's presence, but he was not charged with attempted assassination, which would have been the charge of the story. So it's probably not true, but if it is true, ladies and gentlemen, it's the first example of culinary homeland security in our great nation. <laughs> yeah. So uh, another, so after I talk about the stewards, then I talk about enslaved cooks in the White House, because a lot of our presidents have been slaveholders, and one was for Washington, a guy named Hercules, and Hercules was uh, the cook at Mount Vernon, and when the executive residence moves from New York to Philadelphia, because D.C. was being built, so the capital was Philadelphia for several years, Uh, Washington hires a white woman named Mrs. Reed to be the cook, but I guess her food was straight nasty because he ends up firing her after six months. So he has uh, Hercules come up from Mount Vernon to be installed as the cook. There was only one problem. Pennsylvania had something they called the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780, which meant that if you were an enslaved person on Pennsylvania soil for six months or longer, you're automatically free. So what Washington did to get around this is that right around the six-month deadline, he would pack up all the enslaved people in Philadelphia, send them back to Mount Vernon, leave them there for a couple of weeks and then bring them back. And he does this, I know, west up, right? So he does this on and off through his presidency. Towards the end of Hercules' presidency or the George Washington's presidency, Hercules does escape and it's believed that he actually escapes to Europe because there's a painting of Hercules hanging in a museum in Madrid, Spain. And the title of the painting is A Cook for George Washington and the artist was Gilbert Stuart same artist for the iconic portrait of Washington. And if you look at the clothing of Hercules in that painting, it looks like what an European chef would have worn, not an American chef. But we, because uh, Washington was very vindictive and actually did everything he could to retrieve escaped slaves, we really don't know where Hercules winds up. It's one of the great mysteries. So then after talking about enslaved cooks, then I talk about the free cooks who uh, cook for our presidents. And I focus in on a woman named Laura Dolly Johnson, who was a private cook in Lexington, Kentucky, for a man named John Mason Brown, who was a Kentucky colonel. Well, it was a young Theodore Roosevelt who had dinner at Colonel Brown's house, and he was so impressed with Dolly's cooking. Her name was Laurie Dolly Johnson, Laurie Dolly Johnson. He was so impressed with Dolly's cooking that when Benjamin Harrison becomes president, he recommends Dolly to Benjamin Harrison, and Harrison ends up hiring her. There was one problem. There was already a French woman installed as the White House cook her name was Madame Pelunard, and she didn't like the idea of somebody taking her job. So this is the first example we know of where a White House employee sues the President of the United States. She files a lawsuit for wrongful discharge. And then the second American response this very French woman has is that she goes to the press and starts dogging out the food habits of the Harrisons. Their biggest sin was that they ate a lot of pie, okay? so. It all gets worked out, and the lawsuit gets settled out of court, and then Dolly Johnson gets installed as the cook, but she only lasts six months because her daughter gets sick back in Lexington, so she goes back, and she uh, cares for her daughter, and then when Grover Cleveland becomes president, he actually hires her to come work at the White House again, and she works for a full term in the White House. After her White House stint, she's one of the few examples of an African-American presidential chef who actually goes on to do a business or something else. So she ends up running restaurants in Lexington, Kentucky, and there are newspaper advertisements of her restaurant. And she says, Dolly, the famous White House cook. Talking about her, I think this is awesome. This is a black woman in the 1890s in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, For those of you who got a recipe card, on the back is Caroline Harrison's recipe for deviled almonds. We don't have any recipes attributable directly to Dolly Johnson, but during her stint, for the Harrisons, she would have cooked this. And this is just very simple. Almonds, butter, and cayenne pepper. Very addictive. Uh, Then the next chapter I talk about what happens when the president travels. So a president can bring their own cook, or they usually, uh, if they're gonna be away from the White House for a long time, they just borrow a local cook. So Franklin Roosevelt, because of his polio, would go to Warm Springs, Georgia to get treatments. And he would stay a couple to three weeks at a time. And a wealthy white family loaned their cook to him, and her name was Daisy Bonner. And Daisy Bonner got him hooked on all kinds of southern delicacies. But you know the one he loved the most? Just guess. It's, I, I, okay, I'll give a free book to anybody who actually guesses this, all right? Nope. Nope. Unusual. Nope, something unusual. Oh, you got it. Who said that? All right, I got to give you a book. She said pig feet. Man, I got Me and my big mouth. Okay, you're, you're going to get a book. No, pig's feet, yeah, pig's feet. Franklin Roosevelt loved pig's feet so much that he served sweet and sour pig's feet to Winston Churchill in the White House. We know this because one of the black butlers witnessed the whole scene and wrote about it in his memoirs, and I have the story in my book. Roosevelt, they take one bite, Roosevelt says, how do you like it? Churchill says, "Um, it's got an interesting texture, kind of slimy. So Roosevelt says, okay, great. We'll have them fried next time. And I guess Churchill's face said it all because he said, I don't think I'd like them fried. And they started laughing. Now, if you don't believe how much he loves pig's feet, if you go to Warm Springs, Georgia today, they actually have preserved the shopping list for Roosevelt's last week of life. And on there are four pig's feet. So that's how much he liked it. But she got him hooked on all kinds of things. But one thing that he loved was something she made called a cheese souffle. Has anybody here ever made a souffle? Okay, so f- souffle cooks, what is your biggest concern about a souffle? <laughs> Falling, right, deflation. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to tell you a story that's a miracle that's going to rattle your soul and maybe even your belly. Last day of FDR's life, he's sitting for a portrait. You may have seen it, It's an unfinished portrait. Daisy Bonner had a cheese souffle in the oven that was timed to be served at 1:15. FDR has his fatal cerebral hemorrhage at 1:12, so he never gets the souffle. Daisy Bonner says that that souffle did not fall for two hours until he was officially pronounced dead. Now, I have the recipe in my book, and I can just tell you, it doesn't stay up that long. But anyway, that's what she says. But she was so moved um, about FDR's death that she actually is the one who calls the White House switchboard. And if you go to Warren Springs, Georgia, and go to the kitchen in what they call the Little White House, you'll see a plaque on the wall and some plastic. And underneath the plastic, Daisy Bonner wrote in pencil, Daisy Bonner cooked first and last meal for President Roosevelt so she preserved that just to tell you another quick souffle story John F. Kennedy loved souffles but he was notoriously late for meals so the chef's strategy to get John F. Kennedy his souffle is he prepared four separate souffles and then he cooked them on 15 minute intervals just hoping that JFK would arrive on time so that was his strategy for that Um, Then, this is a chapter you'll love. I wrote a chapter purely about uh, presidential drinks. Because one of the biggest cat and mouse games in uh, American history is whether or not our president gets their drink on. Okay? And presidents usually will decline, you know, they will just say, I don't drink. And then somebody proves that they do drink. And they say, well, I don't drink a lot. And then they prove they do drink a lot. And they'll say, well, it's just wine. And they'll say, no, it's more than that. So (laughs) a lot of funny stories about that. Uh, anybody? Want, I'm not going to give a free book for this one. <laughs> anybody want to guess what John F. Kennedy's favorite beer was? No, no. It's a brand. It's a brand. No, no, no. Yeah, you're in the white, right. You're getting in the right part of the world. Getting the right part of the world. Not Guinness. Heineken. Yes, he loved Heineken. Now. The funniest core story, you all know this one? Have you heard about the core story with Gerald Ford? Okay. All right. Yes. So the story is, and it, it's not been substantiated, but, you know, back in the 70s, you couldn't take Coors beer east of the... you okay. So supposedly, while Ford was out in Colorado for a trip, there were Secret Service people loading up uh, boxes of Coors on Air Force One to take back to the White House. Somebody took a picture of this, but this picture has not surfaced. So anyway, I think it's interesting. But the story I want to tell you is about an old-fashioned cocktail. Does anybody know the ingredients in an old-fashioned cocktail? Okay. Fruits, like citrus, like usually orange, right? Mm -hmm. Whiskey or or bourbon. Yeah. Sugar. Uh Uh-huh. Some kind of bitters. Wow, that's a very good description. Did you have one just before you came over here? All right. He makes them. All right. So this is a very 1950s thing, but the Trumans loved to have an old-fashioned cocktail before they had dinner in the White House. So the first night that they they asked for an old-fashioned, their African-American butler, a guy named Alonzo Fields, who was the same guy who witnessed the pig's feet, uh, he was in charge of making it. He was the bartender. Basically, he was the maitre d' of the White House, but he was in charge of drinks. So he makes it. Bess Truman takes one sip, and she says, uh, Fields could you make these a little drier next time? We're not used to our old fashions being so sweet. Fields is like, all right, not a problem. So uh, the next night that they ask for it, he makes it. Best Truman takes one sip. And she says, this tastes like fruit punch. All right. So now Fields is a little hurt and a little angry. So the next time that the Truman's ask for an old fashioned, he just gets two splashes of bourbon and some ice. Best Truman takes one sip, looks at Fields, and says, now that's how we like our old fashions. (laughs) And then the way I end the book is I talk about uh, what is the future for African-American presidential chefs. So in essence, whoever the president wants to be their chef will be their chef. If the president wanted their mom to be the executive chef of the White House, done deal. What a lot of presidents do is they have... Um, you know the team that I laid out but um, sometimes if they really want specialized cooking just for the family they bring a separate cook who will work in the kitchen that was installed on the second floor during the Kennedy administration uh, before that it was Margaret Truman 's bedroom um, but it, but Jacqueline Kennedy uh, because the first family would eat in the state dining room and she felt it was just too it wasn't intimate enough so she had uh, that space changed into a small kitchenette and dining space uh, and so the since then, uh, first families have eaten their private meals up there. So, um, But not every president does that. President Obama had a guy named Samuel Cass, who was a, he brought in as a private chef. But before that, the last president to have a private chef was a guy named um, was Lyndon Johnson, and her name was Zephyr Wright. Zephyr Wright was probably the most fascinating figure out of a lot of interesting people. Um, she starts cooking for the Johnsons in the 1940s, and uh, many attribute... Lyndon Johnson's rise in Congress to uh, Zephyr Wright's cooking because I'm going to tell you something that's going to sound like science fiction. Okay, you ready for this? Back in the 50s and 40s, like members of Congress would have other members of Congress over to their house for dinner and they would get to know each other and become collegial. Yeah, shocking, right? So very few people passed up an invitation to have Zephyr Wright's cooking and she was known for a lot of things. I have her chili recipe in my book and also her uh, popover recipe, like like a quick bread. I I got a chance to actually interview Linda Bird Johnson, the eldest daughter, and she said that was the popovers were the thing that she remembered the most. So back then, uh, the family would drive from Central Texas. They had a ranch in Central Texas. They would drive back and forth to D.C., uh, and they would have to drive through the South. So Zephyr Wright got tired of all the indignities she suffered going through the Jim Crow South. She couldn't go to the bathroom with the family. She couldn't eat eat dinner. And so she finally got to the point where she refused to make the trip. So when Johnson is pressing for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, he actually uses the anecdotes from Zephyr Wright's experience with segregation to get members of Congress to support the bill. And when he signs the legislation, he gives her one of the pens he used. He signed it with 72 pens. He gave her one of the pens and said, you deserve this as much as anyone. Yeah. But she did. Yeah, that's a cool story. But she did get him in a little bit of hot water in something that I call the 1964 Great Chili Controversy. So, do I have any Texans in the audience? Okay, my Texan. What is distinctive about Texas chili? All right. Yes, did you see how they said that with such force? Right, no beans. So periodically over White House history, they release recipes. Well, in 1964, the White House released something called the Pertinalis River Chili, which is the river that runs along the ranch in Central Texas, and it didn't have any beans. And this scandalized the nation. They wanted to be assured that their president loved beans. So I actually have an audio recording of Johnson's social secretary talking to Zephyr Wright about their bean strategy. And they're going through all of the president's favorite beans, and it's awesome. Now, this was part of all of the other recordings from the Johnson White House. Now, just a quick history of the audio recording system in the White House. JFK was actually the first one to have it installed. Johnson is the one who greatly ramps up its use, and then he recommends it to Nixon, and we all know how that turned out. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of this recording, after going through all of his beans, and one of the funniest moments is they talk about how they use Velveeta for special occasions. I just to say that's hilarious. It's the 1960s. You know, give them a break. All right. So at the, uh, after all of this happens, um, La- Lady Bird Johnson, in her memoirs, writes that the recipe cards that they distributed for this, that was probably that was the second most requested document from the federal government in 1964. <laughs> the only one that was requested more was the, the recently uh, released uh, children and, uh, Women and Children Nutrition Program. So the information about that. Uh, so just very interesting. Um, another interesting cook I talk about is a guy named John Mooney, who wasn't really a cook. He was the valet for President Dwight Eisenhower. And he was actually Eisenhower's valet during World War II. But they became so close that when Eisenhower became president, he actually asked Mo- John Mooney to come with him to the White House. I would say that Eisenhower was probably our president who cooked the most. He just loved to cook. And um, he actually had a grill installed on the rooftop of the White House, So imagine, you're walking down 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, right? You look up and you see smoke coming out of the White House. It's the president up there grilling, you know? Um, But he was known for a vegetable stew that had a lot of beef in it. But within the White House, it was known as Moni's stew because Moni was kind of basically the sous chef and did a lot of the work. But that's not to take anything away from Eisenhower because he really did love to cook. But it just shows you kind of how these cooks, not only were they good at what they did, but they often became family confidants and friends and uh, a lot of strong bonds um, between them. But now, going back to the the last chapter, so I I first talk about a guy named Patrick Clark, who was really the last African-American to be offered the White House executive chef position. So he was a well-known chef in New York City, so much so that Anthony Bourdain, who does not suffer fools, in his very first book, he gives Patrick Clark a very complimentary shout-out. So that tells you that this guy had some skills. So um, but Clark relocates from New York City to Washington, and he works at the Hay Adams Hotel, which is not too far from the White House. So Hillary and Bill Clinton go to eat in the White House, or I mean in Hay Adams, and they really enjoyed his meal. So they actually started sending senior staffers over there to sample uh, Clark's, Chef Clark's food, and they love it so much that they offer him the job. But he turns it down because it was too much of a pay cut. He was making six figures in the hotel job. What do you think the White House uh, salary was at that time? This is 1993 for the White House executive chef. Very close, 58000 So, And he was making six figures, and he had four kids growing up, you know, so he just didn't take it. Um, so, uh, but he was a very interesting guy, and uh, very, next year they offer him the opportunity to make the state dinner for Nelson Mandela who was visiting as president of the Republic of South Africa. So he devised a meal, which was a sesame-crusted halibut, sesame-seed-crusted halibut, with uh, vegetables, with a red curry and lemongrass sauce. So he's trying to capture the Malay flavors of South Africa. And shortly before the dinner, the Clintons tell Chef Clark, you're not making the dinner. He's like, what are we talking about? They said, no, we want you to be the guest of honor. So he got to be the guest of honor to sit at the table with uh, Nelson Mandela. And his, his assistant cooks handled the meal. Um, that meal is in my book. If you're an ambitious cook, it's, it's not too hard, but it's, it's a little challenging. But I have that state dinner uh, meal in my book uh, as one of the recipes. Uh, and then I end uh, with a young lady named Kiana Farkash. So Michelle Obama, as part of her Let's Move initiative, uh, she would have essentially what she called kid state dinners. So she would have a healthy recipe contest, and uh, kids of a certain age would enter, and then every state had a representative. And so I I thought it would be kind of cool to talk to the African Americans who represented their state, and lo and behold, we had one from Colorado. When I'm outside Colorado, I say, see, there's more proof there's black people in Colorado, (laughs) because no one ever believes me, even though I'm standing in front of them. Um, So Kiana won with a grilled salmon and warm farro salad with a tropical berry smoothie. Now, I was very impressed because at her age, I was making cream of wheat, you know, scrambled eggs with eggshells. That was what I was making. So uh, I got a chance to interview her, and she's on fire. Um, She's thinking about being a White House chef. She's so sharp that she could actually be president, but she's really on fire for food justice. So she wants to use her talents to maybe address what we call food deserts, the communities that don't have access to a lot of healthy food, produce, um, so, yeah, she's just an amazing young woman. I have to say that she was probably the most difficult and challenging interview to get for my book because I used to date her mom, and it did not end well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, I forgot to mention this. In my book, I also have two beer recipes. I don't know if you knew this, but Obama was a big-time homebrew kind of guy, and so they brewed beer in the White House. Did you all know this? Uh, yeah, so in 2012, they brewed beer using honey from the White House garden. So there's a honey ale and a honey porter uh, recipe in my book. Now I have to tell you, the homebrew people say the recipes are kind of whacked. Uh, I didn't have enough expertise to fix them, and I asked some guys. you know, So anyway, you just have to know what you're doing. Read through it first, and then you can tweak it. Um, but I'll close by saying this. I, I, I mentioned how these were amazing people who were very talented, Um, And they were often family confidants. And and you can see in some stories, like the Zephyr Wright story, sometimes they were civil rights advocates. And um, I think the most valuable contribution they gave is that they gave our uh, our presidents a window on black life that they may not have otherwise had. Not every president chose to open that window and learn, but a lot did. And I think our nation's been better for it. Thank you so much.
1: We're gonna stop. Oh, we're gonna stop for a sec and um, maybe get another beer or something else, and we'll come back for Q and A. I have two important thoughts to share. One is, Kim, who's standing up right now, which is which fine. You're welcome to stand up. I just want I want to share with everyone um, Kim's husband, Fred, who's not here tonight, is our source for beer at Coors, and I'm sure would really appreciate that story about the Coors beer and the airplane. So I hope you share that with him. And we are really grateful for the support you guys have given us. Yeah. So please know that. And then also, in our household, we have this like daily tradition we call quote of the day, and it was kind of a dry day for that. And I went to a lot of meetings. There weren't very many quotable phrases. But while I'm telling souffle stories, I think ranks. Quote of the day. Nice. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and get another beer or whatever you need, and we'll come back in a little bit for Q&A. <laughs> Probably some of you have some questions for Adrian. Here you go. If you don't mind repeating the
2: questions for the recording. Oh, sure. Thanks. Yeah, happy to do that. Any questions? Yes. I want to know if you've tried all the recipes in the book. <laughs> have I tried all the recipes in the book? I have tried most of them, not, but not all of them, because I have some hardcore cocktail ones that I just haven't made at home yet. I did a tasting party, so I, got a, I guess I actually, I should say yes, I have tried all of them, because I did it. We had a, um, I basically asked a lot of home brew people to make the beers, and then I had some people just make all the cocktails, and we had this big tasting party. So, yeah. Now, the one, I I have not made it myself, but I had other people make it, was the Nelson Mandela dinner. Yeah. But some of the other recipes I've had actually at presidential libraries, because there are a mix of um, actual White House recipes. Some are historic, so, like, I couldn't cook them because it's just, it's kind of hard to translate it to a modern oven and all that kind of stuff. And then I had home cooks uh, make them and send me notes, and then I got to taste, so... (laughs) <laughs> I did not include the pig's feet in my book so I, I can say I did not try I mean I've had pig's feet but I didn't have the sweet and sour one if you want the recipe I can hook you up just let me know Yeah. and actually I should have said this the recipe is actually not from Daisy Bonner for the sweet and sour pig's feet it's from the princess of Norway so that's where he got the recipe from yeah, yeah. Yes. did the Obamas eat a lot of the greens from their garden yes so the question is did the Obamas eat a lot of the greens from their garden yes they did so that garden provisioned the White House kitchen. And they would actually use a lot of the ingredients there from, uh, for state dinners. Now the excess they would give to schools and you know shelters and other things in the DC area, but a lot of this, the stuff from the garden showed up in the White House kitchen. So they were eating it. And if you, uh, Michelle Obama came out with a book uh, where she actually shows the first year of the garden and they actually have illustrations of what they planted the location, relative size in the garden. So I, I highly encourage you to get that, that book. I think it's, I want to say homegrown. I can't remember exactly, but yeah. Yes. Was there a major turning point either in your book project in terms of either wanting to walk away from it or something so profound that that was it, Your soul sold on your own? Oh, that's a great question. Was there anything profound that made me either want to walk away from the project or just enthralled me even more? to go for it, is that basically a good summary? Okay, yeah, so nothing ever made me want to walk away from it. The only thing that was really frustrating is uh, the inability to get to contemporary cooks who are African American. So I tracked down 10 former White House chefs, um, six of them white, four black, none of the black ones would talk to me. Uh, Well, I think think several things are going on. I think one, they didn't know who I was, so they might've thought that I'm trying to get dirt. Uh, The second thing is they probably felt there were more professional repercussions for them if they were to be known as talking out of shop, even though I was not trying to get secrets. I was really trying to celebrate them, and I think that's real. Um, And then the other thing is uh, since the 1960s, when Jacqueline Kennedy uh, became first lady and put an emphasis on European cooking, the... uh, the White House kitchen before that was dominated by African-Americans, but with this emphasis on European cooking by classically trained chefs, you start to see the African-American presence wane to the point now where they're all assistant cooks. And so they may not have felt that their story was worthy of celebration, as much as I tried to persuade them otherwise. So I think that's what's going on. Now, the six white chefs, same you know restrictions on talking to people, five out of the six were agreed to talk to me immediately. In fact, most of them were telling me stuff I shouldn't even hear. I mean, with, with, the, with the white chest, the problem was trying to shut them up, actually. Um, and then I knew it was going to be difficult to get, to get to cooks in the White House. So that was a frustration, just the lack of cooperation. So again, I had to rely on, on um, individual sources. But I think the thing that sold me was early on I found out about Zephyr Wright. And that chili story, and listening to that tape, I was just like, I'm all in. I, just, I know there's gold here. I just got to find it. Guess Yeah. Chef, is, uh, in uh, they part. The last time we ever see that, see chef's in the White House. They're both really angry. At that point, was there ever a really explosive departure between African American White House staff and and the White House? Yeah, that's a great story. So uh, he mentions the House of Cards, where uh, Frank Underwood, from his rise through Congress to become a president, actually has this friendship with a guy named Freddie. And he would go to his, that was like his retreat, so he would go to his barbecue place. And like early in the morning, at like 8 o'clock in the morning, would have a plate of ribs made by Freddie. And they had this long friendship, but then they had a falling out. So um, we don't see a lot of incidences of, uh, say, black employees having a falling out with the president. It's more black employees falling out with themselves. So one story that I write in my book is that one morning, Rutherford B. Hayes hears this loud crash coming from the basement. And so he dispatches the White House police to investigate, and what they found out is that uh, this four-foot-tall woman named Lucy Latimer Fowler uh, basically hit another African-American chef over with a, a pan. So they, had a, they got on a fight in the White House kitchen. And newspapers had a field day with this story, you know, because it was right after the Civil War, so they were saying, oh, another Civil War is breaking out in the Rutherford B. Hayes White House and that, that kind of thing. But um, other than that, it's a real collaborative effort. Um, you know, you have a lot of personalities. People don't get along but you don't find many instance, uh, instances of kind of real fights and, and fallout. And I'm sure they happen, but there's such a strong code of silence among White House workers that I think that's why you don't hear about these things. Yeah. Yes, back in the back and then here. All right. So
1: I've, I've got a hypothetical question for you. oh let me take a drink.
0: Never came out strongly against slavery, like ever. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're so busy praising him. Do you think that if he had made a strong statement, that might
2: have changed some of the destiny of these United States? Oh, absolutely. If there was any person that could have altered the course, it was him, because he was so deified in his time. I mean, even to this day, people are still in the White House are still doing things that George Washington used to do. In terms of customs and manners, Um, some others died hard. And I think if he were to make a statement, uh, you know, there would have been some begrudging criticism, but I I think it would have put us on another course. More so than someone like Jeff, because Jefferson, you know, he he mused aloud about this stuff, but he never made a strong statement either. But he was so damaged politically that I don't think it would have had the same sway. So if there was anybody in that era, it would be him, maybe Ben Franklin. Um, but somebody like Alexander Hamilton or Jefferson, they just because they, so many people hated them, I just don't think they could have carried the water on that issue. So great question, but I, I'm convinced if Washington had said something, we'd have a different future. Absolutely. Okay, yes? That's kind of a practical question. With a small
0: kitchen, do you know how they serve large numbers of people
2: at like those state dinners? Great question. So for the large, for the state dinners, what they have to do is they have to hire extra cooks, and they actually have to hire extra waiters to serve. and it all depends on how many people they're going to serve. So until 1860s, 1870s, state dinners were just 36 people. After that, you start to see the amount grow to 54. And then when you get to the Kennedys who the innovation they had is, rather than having a large wishbone shape for the state dinner, they started putting in round tables which greatly increased the number of people you could have. So then you start getting a, a 160. And then, you know, the Obamas have had hundreds. Sometimes you get a couple thousand with people on the tent. So what they have to do f- to cook is they actually create cooking tents and stations outside the White House kitchen. And then a lot of the stately halls in the White House become kind of assembly centers for plating food. So that's what they have to do. And they, and everybody that they hire has to go through the background check. Uh, so. I got told this story, I don't even know if it's true, but essentially this guy was telling me that his friend did not get the White House job as a temporary cook because his last name was Sniper. That just seems ridiculous to me, but that's what he said. Do you know how much one of those state dinners cost? Uh, No, and I don't, and there's a very good reason why I don't know how much the state dinners cost. So uh, another shell game that our presidents play is that they always try to hide the costs of their entertaining, and what they do is they spread the costs out among several agencies. So we never exactly know how much those dinners cost. But there is a budget that's allocated from Congress to cover their entertaining. uh, In in a lot of cases with state dinners, the State Department actually kicks in. Um, But before Truman, the President had to pay for his own cooks and some of his staff out of his own pocket and pay for their food and everything. It wasn't until Truman that Congress started allocating money to cover all of that. Uh, and then if they are running low, they'll reach out to private sources to make up the cost. So, some, you know, so they would reach out to the Republican National Committee you know, if they were going to have a big event at the White House. Yeah. I thought I saw a question over here. Okay, one question I often get, which I haven't gotten tonight, is does the president have a taste tester to make sure that his food is not poisoned? <laughs> and what I tell people is that, yes, the president does have a taster. It's usually the opposition leader in Congress. No, actually, it's the chef. So the chef is the last person to taste the food before it goes to the president. And that's, it's been that case for a long time. Now, believe it or not, up until the Roosevelt administration, Franklin Roosevelt, people would send the White House food and the president would eat it. So they would send turkeys, they would send fish, all kinds of stuff, and the president would, you know, Secret Service would go through it, but they would actually eat the food. Yeah, they would eat the food. Nowadays, the food gets destroyed. So if you, you know, whatever is your slamming dish, your go-to dish, you send it to the White House, it's going to get destroyed. Yeah. And I think there was a time when they would actually um, give it to, you know, hospitals or orphanages or shelters in the D.C. area, but they have even stopped that practice, because I think there's just too much liability. Yeah. All right, well, let me just tell you about my next book. My next book is going to be on the history of African-American barbecue culture. Uh, and the reason why I'm writing this book is because I'm just tired of turning on the Food Network and seeing white hipsters from Brooklyn and Bubba's in the South as the face of American barbecue. If you all know anything about barbecue, it's, that's just crazy. Um, did you know that there's a barbecue hall of fame? They've had nine inductee classes of three there's only one African American. Yes. So, you know, I just, yeah. yeah. So I got to get the word out that African Americans do barbecue and have made significant contributions. So my working title is Black Smoke. That's not, that's not bad. So, all right, well, thank
1: you so much. A couple of quick announcements. Next month, we will have our annual auction for very special tables. So if you want to support Golden Beer Talks, we uh, will auction off some tables. If you are the lucky winner, you get to have your white tablecloth table, meals, beers, and a couple of your friends. Serves four. So start thinking about your bids. We will have our auctioneer here for our Beer Talk on the second Tuesday of November. Also, a quick vignette, I have a good friend who is a, a White House chef, she, pastry chef from the first Bush administration through the Obama administration, and when the Obamas came in and planted the garden, one of the things that they did every year was create an entire replica of the White House grounds in Marzipan at Christmas time, and I, rem, I will never forget, I mean, I got lots of pictures of this over the years, but I will never forget getting the picture of the little garden in Marzipan, That's rendered awesome. in articulate fashion, so... Anyhow, just a little parting image for you. Yeah. Well, I forgot to mention one thing. I can't yeah. Oh, one more thought from Adrian.
2: So uh, I have a good problem in that I keep selling out of books. Mm-hmm. So I actually had one book, which I'm now giving away. So uh, if you, there, my contact information is on those cards. You can go to my website, and if you order a book, I can send it to you and autograph it to, uh, as well. So you can get my book on Amazon, most local bookstores. It is Kindle form. There's also an audio book as well so there's a lot of different ways to get the books. so sorry I keep running out of them but awesome. yeah alright thanks
1: All right. so we'll see you next month thank you